You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing our series in this wonderful letter a series that we've called Gospel Culture in God's Household. Today we'll be in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 10. Now it would be an understatement to say that this past week was particularly newsworthy. Millions of people, perhaps even hundreds of millions of people all over the world had their eyes glued to their screens awaiting the results of the American election. Every news outlet you could think of had its own comprehensive coverage of this historic presidential race. Interactive graphics, live streams, and seemingly endless commentary on who is going to be the president of the United States. And it seems that we have our answer. Now, in the midst of all this content was a series of important articles buried in the bowels of the internet produced by my favorite news outlet, Sportsnet. This paragon of high-quality journalism tracked the story of a certain young player on the Toronto Blue Jays who admitted to showing up at training camp in the 2020 baseball season 30 pounds overweight. Now, you may wonder why that's such a big deal. Well, two years ago, this young player was touted as perhaps the most exciting prospect that baseball history had ever seen. His father is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He had extraordinary statistics in the minor leagues, and he actually had a reputation for being a hard worker. But then the 2020 season started, and if you know anything about baseball and the physique of baseball players, this boy was a big boy. And as a result, he struggled mightily out of the gate. He hit well below league average. He hit well below expectations. He was actually moved from third base to first base, not because he had any injuries, but because management was concerned that just playing at the hot corner would cause him physical injury, even though he's only 20 years old. And most significantly, he was overshadowed by other young baseball stars who didn't have the same pedigree, but had outworked him on and off the field. By the end of this season, this young Blue Jay admitted that he showed up at camp overweight, out of shape, and unprepared to compete at the highest level. And he apologized to his teammates, to his credit. He took responsibility. And he told the media that he had learned the most important lesson of all, that there is no substitute for hard work. Talent can only get you so far. And if you want to compete and stay at the highest levels in his sport, Hard work and discipline have to become part of your lifestyle. Well, that's the lesson we're going to learn today, except we're not going to apply this lesson to helping us to run faster or hit a ball a little harder. We're going to apply it to our pursuit of godliness. Godliness has been our theme over the last two sermons in our series in 1 Timothy. We looked at the mystery of godliness uh, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
The mystery of godliness being that we grow in godliness as we behold the one who is perfectly godly, Jesus Christ. As we not only imitate him, but behold him in the perfection of his character and we are transformed into the same image. Then we learned about counterfeit godliness last Sunday. What looks like true piety and godliness is actually just a knockoff. Today we're going to talk about what we can do to become godly people. The Apostle Paul showed that he could use sports analogies with the best of us, or perhaps the worst of us, when he wrote, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Today we want to hear that word again, hear that word afresh to exhort us, to encourage us to to run the race with commitment, to, to run the race with the goal of achieving the imperishable wreath of glory. That's what our text is about this morning. So let's read our text today, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Our outline today will be very simple, captured in three words. First, feasting. Second, training. And third, hoping. Feasting, training, and hoping. Let's look at our first point, feasting. Now, the centerpiece of verses 6 to 10 is found in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The reason why we can say that it's the centerpiece of the text is because of what verse 9 says about verse 8. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now recall what these trustworthy sayings were. This is the third and final trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy. These were sayings that were commonly used in the early church that had reached the ears of the Apostle Paul. And as he heard them, he he had to correct some of them and others he had to say, that's a great saying. And, And that deserves wide circulation. You remember the first one, the first trustworthy saying in chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The second trustworthy saying was in the beginning of chapter 3, where he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And this third and final trustworthy saying is about training for godliness. And that's important for us to note because it tells us just how essential this was in Paul's mind. Training for godliness wasn't an optional add-on to the Christian life. It was a necessary entailment of the gospel in every believer's life. We're not saved by this, 
We don't, we don't earn our salvation by training for godliness and, and earning our merit before God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, our commitment to training for godliness serves as a confirmation that we are indeed saved, we are indeed born again, we are indeed indwelt by the Spirit. Truly saved sinners want to become godly servants, and they will train themselves to become just that. Well, what does this training look like? Well, Paul begins explaining in verse six, where he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. It's putting these things before the brothers that contributes to making someone a good and godly servant. Now, these things that are being put before the church might refer to everything that Paul has said in 1 Timothy, but it more likely refers to what he has just said in verses one to five, the verses that we looked at last Sunday, the verses about the dangers of legalism and the, the countering truth of the goodness of God. That's the immediate context. A good servant of Christ Jesus will declare that everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. Now, of course, we need to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy as a pastor, a a pastor writing to another pastor. So not everything is going to apply directly to those who are not pastors. What we want to note at this point is that as Paul is talking about what it means to be a, a good servant slash good pastor, He's not saying that, well, you need to build a, a, a big and successful church. He's not saying that, that you need to, to write a bunch of books that uh, become popular works. He's not saying that you need to attract a large, feel, uh, a large following. No, being a good servant, being a good pastor means putting the goodness of God before those who are around you. That's what good pastors are meant to do. But you could also say that that's what good Christians do because even though we, we may not all be called to, to preach and to teach in a formal capacity, all of us have the responsibility to speak about our Savior. We all have a, a ministry of speech even though we may not all have a ministry of preaching. We are all to tell people about the goodness of God that finds its culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we become like that? Because if you're like me, you know that it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to have the goodness of God constantly in our mouths, ready to share with others. How do we become the kinds of people who are ready to do that? Well, verse six says it comes from being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. That, that is the key. That is the key to become the kinds of men and women who love to talk about the goodness of God to others. The word for trained here is literally nourished. Those who are being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. You must be nourished by the word because you can only put before others what you have already put before yourself. You can only feed others if you yourself have already been fed. You can only lead people to drink from the streams of God's goodness if you yourself have been satisfied. St. Augustine captured this beautifully when he wrote to his church, I feed you on what I am fed on myself. I am just a servant. 
I am not the head of the house. I set before you, I set food before you from the pantry that I too live on from the Lord's storerooms. Now this really is an amazing truth. It's the truth, it's the truth that the, the key to lasting godliness is feasting on God's goodness. It's not just making yourself do it because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's becoming the kind of person who can't help but talk about God's goodness because you've tasted of its joys for yourself. God's good servants aren't just those who do the right things. There are those who enjoy the right things, or perhaps more specifically or accurately, they enjoy the right person. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so the question for us today is, are we eating from the Lord's pantry? Is, is the bread of life fresh in our mouths or has it become stale? Has it become dry? Perhaps you're going through a season right now where the goodness of God is not a perceived, experienced reality. You believe it as a, as a principle, as a statement of faith, but not as an experienced reality. Well, if that's you, then, then God isn't so much calling you out as he is calling you in. Calling you in to feast at his banqueting table. He's calling you to, to feast not just on his word, but on what his word reveals about him, about his love, about his faithfulness, about his steadfast love for those who belong to him. He's calling us to feast on his goodness a goodness that finds its full expression in Jesus Christ and to be nourished again and again by the life-saving, life-giving message that Christ died for our sins. He's calling you to taste and see that the Lord is good so that when you meet other weary pilgrims, other hungry travelers on your way, you will know where to point them. You will point them to God and to his overflowing goodness so that they too may drink and be satisfied. We are called to feast on the goodness of God. And as we do, we will grow in godliness. But listen, if you've ever prepared a feast, you know it takes work. And perhaps it even takes training. Whether that training is done in a uh, school of, like a culinary school or whether that training is done on YouTube. It takes planning, it takes hard work, it takes training. And that leads to our second point. Paul says in verse seven, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, the word train here in verse seven is actually a different Greek word than the word trained in verse six. In verse six, it was, it was evoking the imagery of, of eating and being nourished, growing up by eating good food. But this word in verse seven is borrowed from the world of athletics and is meant to transfer our minds from the kitchen to the gym. It's actually the word gymnazo, which is where we get the word gymnasium from. And the, the, the ancient use of this word literally meant to train naked because that's how young athletes would train in the gymnasium. 
they, they would throw off everything that would hinder them from a full body workout. Paul's telling Timothy that we must train for godliness in the same way. If you've ever trained for something, you'll know that it requires focus and it requires commitment. The more serious the competition, the less we tolerate unnecessary distractions. It's no different with godliness. And that's why Paul warns Timothy to not be distracted by what he calls irreverent, silly myths. Timothy was not to engage in spiritual speculation about things that distracted him from his own personal growth. You know, John Newton, the well-known author of the timeless hymn, Amazing Grace, he wrote this in one of his letters. I set no value upon any doctrinal truth unless it has a tendency to promote practical holiness. We are to focus our attention on what promotes practical holiness because the church, what, what we are is not a theology club where we just talk about ideas and we intrigue each other by our intellectual propositions. No, it's not a theology club, it's a spiritual gym where we are together working out for ourselves and for one another to grow in personal, practical holiness. Now this is so important because we live in a time when many people believe that talking about something is the same thing as doing something. You know, we see this all the time where some injustice faces us on social media or on the news. And everybody rushes onto, the, onto their Twitter or Instagram or whatever and they, they make some denunciatory statement. And they express their moral outrage and then they move on. The, 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 the talking has become equated with the doing. And they're not the same. I mean, it's important to talk about things, but it is more important to do something about it. Many people are concerned about giving their opinions on things, but hardly anyone is concerned about what they can do about it. And more specifically, hardly anyone is concerned about their own failings, their own sinfulness, their own need to grow. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be informed or we shouldn't say anything about what is out there, but I am saying that we shouldn't be so consumed by whatever may be trending that we're distracted from what's important. I mean, politics, it's important. The conspiracy theories out there that, that may make us question the true motives of those who are in power, we want, we want to learn what those are. But when they begin to consume our attention, when they begin to distract us from personal godliness, then we've lost our way. We must be less concerned about what's going on out there, out there, and more concerned about what's going on in here. Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. You know, when I first started walking with Christ in my late teens as a young believer, this was one of the most formative verses in my life. This is one of the first verses I memorized and it set the tone for my early Christian life to train myself for godliness. And I'm thankful for that because it taught me that I'm not gonna get anywhere without discipline. I'm not gonna grow if I don't commit myself to it. You must train for godliness. You won't grow if you don't work. 
No one becomes godly by just coasting along and going with the flow. Growth takes diligence and growth takes discipline. Now, you might be wondering, well, isn't that legalistic? Isn't that exactly what Paul was addressing in verses one to five? The, the, the verses that we saw last Sunday when he's denouncing the legalists and saying, don't live like that. Instead, enjoy life. Well, they may seem similar, but in reality, they're completely different. Let me explain how. Legalism glorifies man. It says, I have what it takes to make myself godly, and I'm gonna make my own way to become that. But discipline glorifies God. It says, I I am so sinful and I am so broken that I need to discipline myself to seek the Lord and I will do so in the ways that God has ordained in his word. It couldn't be more different. Legalism is an act of rebellion. Discipline is an act of submission. Legalism expresses trust in yourself. Discipline expresses trust in God. Legalism calls bad what God calls good. Discipline expresses a belief that everything that God has created is good, but there are times when you give up what is good to get what is better. You give up 30 minutes of sleep, not because sleep is bad, but because reading your Bible is better. And reading your Bible in particular before the kids wake up, before you go to work, that is necessary for you to to set the Lord always before you. Or you fast, Not because food is bad, but because sensing God meets you in your weakness is better than the best feast that you can enjoy in this world. Discipline gives up what is good in order to obtain that which is better. There is a fine line, no doubt, between the two, between legalism and discipline. Legalism can look like discipline, and discipline can easily become legalism. If we are to grow in godliness, we must understand the differences between the two, and we must navigate, navigate our hearts carefully between them. Now, if you're like me, you probably find the training metaphor challenging, because most of us find training difficult. Training's hard, and we don't like to do hard things. We'd, we'd rather do what is easy and comfortable and, and immediate in its gratification. But if any of us are willing to do something hard, it usually has to do with our bodies, doesn't it? With our physical health. You know, we we learn that we're overweight and the doctor warns about diabetes or obesity and and we make changes. We we change our diets and we start exercising. We, we, We download the latest fitness apps. We buy a monthly gym membership. We're willing to to do things to train ourselves bodily. But we don't tend to apply the same discipline to our spiritual lives. And why is that? Why, Why is it? It's because our bodies reflect what people see of us, right? And, and we live in such a visual culture that what people see of us forms the basis of their judgment of who we are and how much we're worth. We work out because we want people to like us. And this is when we need to be reminded that God looks beyond our physical beauty and he peers into the depths of our souls. Do you remember what 
the prophet Samuel was uh, instructed, what, what God spoke to Samuel when he was appointing the next king after Saul. He's in Bethlehem looking at all the strong, handsome sons of Jesse. And he thinks, that one must be the one. That one looks like a king. I could follow that man. The Lord says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. My friends, that that is what godliness is all about. Godliness is about training ourselves by God's grace, with God's help, to have beautiful hearts. It's training our souls in the same way that we train our bodies, not to receive the approval of people, but to receive the pleasure of God. Paul explains why we should do this in verse eight. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is that trustworthy saying. If you're gonna memorize anything in the Bible, if you're gonna commit to memory anything in this letter, look at the trustworthy sayings. Meditate on them deeply, including this one. And Paul's telling us something very obvious here, but we so easily forget it which is why it needs to be a trustworthy saying. He's telling us that the value of our training depends on how long the effects of that training last. I mean, no one's gonna sign up for an intense workout where you, where you sweat and where you huff and puff and where you feel like you're gonna die if you receive the promise that it'll give you one hour of satisfaction. No one's gonna do that. The cost benefits don't make sense. But that's precisely what we're doing when we spend all our time, energy, and resources on our physical health and completely ignore our spiritual health. My friends, this this life is only a breath. These earthly bodies that we have, they will deteriorate and decay. They are here today and they are gone tomorrow, and yet we treat them as if they will last forever. It is the lie of earthly immortality let us not forget that it is a lie. Let us not be deceived into believing that we can somehow make our beauty last forever. We are like flowers of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. The only thing that will never fade is our godliness. Yes, bodily training has some value because it lasts for some time. And we do want to have the the energy and the health to serve God with a healthy constitution. I mean, I I went for a run yesterday because I want to do what I can to be healthy. I I, I returned in a very poor state because it's been a while, but I do believe that bodily training has some value. It lasts for some time, but godliness has absolute value because its benefits never fade away. It lasts forever forever. It is good to stay healthy and exercise, but it is more important to train for godliness. Lastly, we've looked at feasting, we've looked at training. Lastly, we look at hoping. Verse 10, Paul says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul's giving us the reason, the the motivation, the, the fuel that will keep us training for godliness. We, we toil and we strive and we train for godliness, not because of what 
we believe we can do, but because we believe what God can do. Our hope is set not on ourselves, but on the living God. We, we look to him in hope as we train, not fearing that our efforts will be in vain, but believing that it will have its intended effect because God is at work. His spirit is at work deep in our souls, making our efforts filled with his grace and his power. Without him, all of our efforts would be meaningless. It would all be futile. Reading our Bibles, praying, going to church, it would all be powerless to bring about any lasting change because we can't heal our own hearts. We can't cure our own souls. Sin's power over us is just too great. Growing in godliness truly is a supernatural work that requires supernatural assistance. And that is what Jesus offers us. That is what Jesus came into the world to give us. He came to redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin by his death on the cross so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be freed from sin to become truly godly people. Christ Jesus, he is the savior. And look at what it says in verse 10. It says he is the savior of all people not just of the healthy and strong, but of the weak, not just of the wealthy, but of the poor, not just of the beautiful, but of the ordinary. He is the savior of all people, no matter your race or religion, your creed or your station in this life. The only way to receive this salvation is by his grace, to receive it by belief. He is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. If you've never put your trust in Christ before, you can do that today. You don't have to be good enough or godly enough because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He, he died not because we are godly, but in order to make us godly. We are saved from the penalty of sin so that we can be saved from the power of sin. And so you can come to him today. You can repent of your sins and turn to Christ as your savior. And you can taste his goodness that is more satisfying than any pleasure that you can experience in this lifetime. Let me conclude with two words of application for those who want to train for godliness, those who are in Christ and who want to grow in Christ. First, Training for, godliness, training for godliness begins with Bible reading. Okay, we all know that. But we need to hear it again. We're not gonna grow in any other way if our nose isn't in this book. I remember when I was younger, there was this phenomenon going on among young believers where we would just engage in what was called listening prayer. Okay, you go, all go in a room and you just all close your eyes and maybe listen to some music and you just listen. God has spoken. He has spoken in his word. That's not to say that the spirit doesn't lead us. He doesn't speak to us. He, he does, but he speaks primarily to us through his word. His word is the revelation of the word who became flesh. We will not grow in godliness without Bible reading. 
We must read this book widely, we must read this book deeply, and we must read this book regularly. But as you're reading it, remember that you haven't truly read it until you've been affected by what it says, until you've been moved beyond comprehension and into worship. That's why we train and discipline ourselves. It's not not so that we can just check off a a box on our to-do list. It's not just so that we can deny ourselves and prove that we're godly people. Discipline is always about freedom. Think about it. The musician disciplines herself to practice so that she can have the freedom to play the most beautiful music. The, the, The athlete disciplines himself so that he can have the freedom of competing at the highest level. And Christians, Christians, we discipline ourselves so that we can have the freedom of feasting on God's goodness. Remember this, every time you read your Bible, every time you pray, every time you go to church, if you read your Bible for an hour every day, but you never pause and marvel at what the word has revealed about the glories of God, you've missed the whole point. You've, you've looked at the feast, but you haven't eaten of it. Food's not gonna do you any good if you just look at it. You need to put it in your mouth. You need to chew on it for a while. You need to let its flavors fill your mouth and then you swallow it. That's how food nourishes you. And so don't just read to comprehend. Read to enjoy, to encounter, to take in the goodness of God. When you read about God's mercy towards sinners, when you read about his patience toward his rebellious people, even when you read about his justice against the wicked, pause, meditate on it, and let it lead your heart to worship. Sometimes we find this difficult because what we're reading is so familiar. Have you ever found that before? You say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit down with my Bible, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna enjoy God, and you're like, oh, I already know all this. I, there's nothing new here. This is, this is getting boring. Well, do we treat food like that? We don't say, I've had steak before, so this one right in front of me isn't gonna taste good at all. We can enjoy the goodness of the word every time we encounter it, whether it's a new insight or whether it's an old truth. You know, my friends, don't underestimate the power of familiar truths. You know, aren't our best friends our oldest friends? Aren't the best meals the ones that we enjoyed in childhood? Old truths can bring fresh comfort if we would just pause, meditate, and enjoy them. Second and last point of application. If we are to learn how to train ourselves for godliness, we must learn how to intentionally, specifically, focus on the areas of our weakness, on the flaws in our character. Just like an athlete will target an area for improvement in the off-season. I'm too slow as a skater, so I'm going to work on my power skating, or I need to increase my bat speed, so I'm going to work on my core strength. We need to be able to target aspects of our sinfulness with the same relentless intentionality. Well, how does that work? Well, it starts with looking at yourself in the mirror. Not not in a physical mirror, but in the mirror of God's word. Because 
This book is what reveals to us what we were meant to look like, what our lives were meant to look like. Only this word is the true mirror of God. Everything else is a distortion. Everything else sets for us a lower standard than what God has for us. And so you can look at the fruit of the spirit. One of these old friends. The fruit of the spirit is love. Oh, you could spend a, lot, a long time on that one. Or joy. Or peace. Or you could look at, at 1 Corinthians 13. You could say, okay, I, I want to grow in love. Well, what does love look like? Well, love is patient. Oh, have I been struggling with patience recently? Have I, have I, have I been short with my spouse or with my children? Or with my friends? Oh, love does not boast. Well, have I been boasting? Perhaps not speaking about myself, but thinking about it in my own mind. I'm, I'm more attractive than that person. I'm smarter than that person. Uh, I, I'm boasting about myself. I'm, I'm exalting myself and putting others down in, in the secret places of my mind. Well, if, if that's the case, if you have a tendency to look down on others, to, to trust your own judgment or make decisions without seeking the Lord first, then you can make a plan. You can make a plan to put your pride to death and to grow in humility. You can do that by studying what the Bible teaches about humility. You can study what the Bible warns against those who are proud. You can pick up a Christian book about humility or the dangers of pride. And most importantly, most importantly, you must pray. You must keep pressing this issue before the Lord praying that your pride would be put to death and that you would be a humble person. I can tell you, I won't get into all the details now, but over the last two years, I've been praying certain things for my own life regularly. And one of them is humility. Because I recognize my own personal struggles with pride and self-exaltation and self-trust. We want to become godly people and the only way to do that is to discipline ourselves for it. Over time, you will find that you will begin to change. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen over time because our hope is not set on ourselves but on the living God. You know, the good news about the Christian faith is that when when athletes discipline themselves, they can't feast anymore. But when Christians discipline themselves, they get to feast every day. For the Christian, training is feasting. And so let us commit ourselves to training for godliness, for God's glory, and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this trustworthy saying that is just as relevant today as it was in the first century, how we want to train for godliness, that our lives would honor you and that we would increasingly enjoy the goodness that you would pour into our lives. Help singles, help married couples, help parents with their children to take this seriously and to approach it with an eager anticipation of greater joy because our hope is set on you. 
We pray for your help. We pray that the fruit of this would be a true and abiding godliness in our lives, our families, and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.